Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to After the Jag Corps, navigating your career progression, a podcast for judge advocates leaving military service. After the JAG Corps assists officers transitioning from the military law practice by learning from individuals who have successfully embarked on new careers, providing insight on rewarding professional opportunities, job search strategies, resumes, the value of your military experience, and more. Now, here is your host, Tom Welsh. Today on the podcast, we're going to hear from Scott Thompson. Scott is a retired Navy JAG who started active duty in 1994 served just over 21 years before retiring in 2015. He held a number of jobs in the JAG Corps, including as commanding officer, did a tour in Afghanistan and at headquarters before punching out. And after the Navy, Scott became executive director and chairman of the board for correction of Naval records for 11 months before joining the DOD's office as general counsel standards of conduct office, where he fleeted up in 2019 to become its director. So Scott, welcome to the podcast. Well, thanks, Tom. I've enjoyed being a consumer of your podcast and appreciate this great effort to help all of us former and current judge advocates and military legal professionals out. It's a great podcast. Thanks. Well, for those who know Scott and I know that we were in the same basic lawyer class from January to March of 1994, and then we spent two weeks together on the Bruins Missile Destroyer USS Stump for the old lawyer at sea program. Yeah, I don't even know if Stump's in commission anymore. No, no, all the sprue cans are gone. But Scott, when you retired, you had about nine years of runway left. And by all accounts, you could have punched some pretty good tickets before you retired. So what went into your decision to call it a day with the Navy JAG Corps when you did? It was a process of a couple of years, kind of looking at where I was both professionally and with my family. And, you know, I think like many judge advocates, we end up in D.C. and we end up here at a time when our family has kids in school and we're looking for a little stability. So it was partly that, also looking for some opportunity to spend more time perhaps with my family. And I just knew that if I wasn't going to be as willing to move around as a judge advocate, it was probably time for me to start looking for opportunities that wouldn't require so many moves. That said, I left on a high note, I guess, as the N1's lawyer loved what I was doing. And I think there would have been continuing flavors of more challenging jobs ahead, but it seemed like the right time. And I was in a good place professionally and personally to make the transition. And so when you made that decision, what at that point were you considering doing and how did you arrive at those decisions? Yeah, that was one of the hardest things to was to figure out what do I want to do when I grow up? Because the great thing about the JAG Corps is we're able to do so much. But as I look back on my experiences, and I guess the process I followed was kind of roughed out a resume, which was garbage, to be honest with you. I had a lot of great feedback on it to improve it. But as part of that process, I went back through things like fitness reports and awards, just try to figure out, you know, what is it that I've done? Because uh, we just sort of, many of us just sort of go along and keep having fun. And I kept coming back to, when I thought about what is it that I like to do, I kept coming back to areas of compliance. So thinking about that broadly, being part of investigation teams, reviewing investigations, 
working in the ethics field in particular, even in the military personnel area, I had expertise in that area. I mean, that's largely compliance. I mean, lots of statutory and regulatory requirements when you're doing officer personnel boards for the Navy and Marine Corps. So again, that all kind of coalesced around what I thought were strengths first in kind of government regulatory bodies of law, and then also just a a general aptitude for compliance work. I enjoy it. I think you get to help fix things when you're doing compliance work. And I like to help solve problems and and I like to help people navigate laws and regulations that aren't always intuitive. So when you settled on that, where did you pursue work? Yeah. So I had a conversation, you know, with a few mentors and got good feedback from them about first before I go shopping my resume around, really firm up in my mind and, and talk with my family about what it is that I wanted in terms of not only just professionally out of employment, but just lifestyle and things like that. So that was really helpful just good, honest feedback. And I'll tell you, the reservists in particular that I've worked with were just fabulous resources because they spend three quarters of their life in the private or public sector doing other work. And so they provided great feedback. But I started looking in a few different areas. So I would say to everybody that I was not a a believer that networking was essential. And I'm now a convert and would offer to everybody that networking is essential because once people in the JAG Corps and in the JAG Corps, the larger kind of alumni community knew that I was looking, they were actively trying to help me without me asking. So I would get calls to say, hey, you care if I submit your name for this? Hey, you might be interested. And so I had a number of opportunities. I was pursuing two opportunities with the VA, one in their inspector general organization, and then the other as a veterans law judge job couple of ethics jobs, one with Department of Interior, and then the other with Homeland Security, and then the other with one of the intelligence agencies. And then because I was the N1's lawyer and I had this military personnel background, the Navy had reached out to me about throwing my hat in the ring for a position at the Board for Correction and Naval Records. So I was pursuing all those things in parallel. My target date was to be on terminal leave by July. I started the process in earnest in January and then started applying for jobs probably about March. And in one case, that was a little bit too early. I would say for federal jobs, you need a little more runway oftentimes, especially if you're with DOD at least. You know, I wanted to give myself enough time. So it worked out pretty well. At the end of the day, I decided not to pursue the IG job at VA. My wife wisely advised me that that sounded like a job that it would be easy to get fired from. So uh, I took her counsel and I was continuing along with this veterans law judge position, as well as a position with the intelligence agency as an ethics attorney, and then the BCNR. So those are the three that I was you know, ultimately kind of pursuing in, in parallel. Yeah. So when you say you began to search in earnest in January, you started applying in March, and your target date was to begin terminal leave in July. Did you end up, I mean, what happened? Did you end up getting an offer before you were ready to punch on that one job? And on the other jobs, Were you weighing those at the same time? I mean, you know, I'm trying to drill down on that sweet spot for people to apply. And I know the answer is it depends. But what was your experience, a little bit more granularity on those? Yeah, the initial job I was offered as an ethics counselor in in one of the Homeland Security agencies was actually a person that I had gone to justice school with. So she kind of had reached out to me. I mean, I applied. She saw my resume and I didn't even know she was working there. And she was very candid. She said, hey, I want to bring you on board, but it's just too soon. I can't wait until July. So I think we were having that conversation in probably April or May. So yeah, that was one I probably applied for too soon. It would have gone very well, but things all work out, right? So yeah, I I think I started a little too soon there. I would say for the intelligence agency, it would have been a great job, but that hiring process is long because the agency I was applying to, you'd have to go through multiple background checks and a poly. 
I was going to stop getting paid and start drawing retired pay on October 1st. And I needed to have a job before then. And I wasn't confident that, uh, that all those clear, not that there's anything in my past that would have tripped me up, but just the process of getting all of those reviews was not going to be concluded based upon the people I had talked to. That was also influenced my determination. But I would say if anybody's applying to an intelligence agency, you know, I was leaving the Navy with a, a DOD TSSCI clearance, but there can be a lot more that's required. So just understand that as you're looking at employers and, you know, leave yourself some lead time. And so on the BCNR job and the VA jobs, so were those offers around the same time that you had to weigh them? Or was it a matter of passing on the IG job and then the BCNR job popping up later? No, this was all kind of coalescing around the same time. I passed on the IG job pretty early, but I was still actively pursuing the uh, the veterans law judge job. And there, they were more interested in not necessarily any specific military experience I had because I didn't do disability law in the Navy, but I had been fortunate to work in the Navy's administrative law division, just kind of like the SJA to the JAG. And so there's a high volume of personnel actions that go through there and also in N1. And so they were really interested in the ability to move cases quickly and put processes in place to help move cases quickly. So it would have been very interesting. So I was still actively pursuing that, the intelligence agency and BCNR all at the same time. And you ultimately ended up at BCNR. Did you relieve Dean Pfeiffer or was that Rob? No, I had the good fortune to relieve Rob O'Neill. So, you know, Rob O'Neill became executive director of the BCNR after a, a person who had served there for many, many, many years. And all the service correction boards were under high congressional scrutiny at the time. There hadn't really been a lot of investments made in them. So there was a lot of work that needed to be done to include bringing on new people to help increase the capacity and the capability. So the expertise, but just sheer numbers of people that they needed. So Rob did a lot of that spade work in the year that he was executive director. And then for personal reasons, wanted to stay with the board, but in a different position. So that's when Rob made me aware of the opportunity at the BCNR. You took the job with BCNR, but you only did 11 months there. And then tell us about how the SOCO job as a staff attorney at the Standards of Conduct Office, how did that come available? Yeah, again, you know, it's that network that I initially didn't think was that important, but it ended up being really important. So I had thrown my name into the DOD OGC resume bank. So anybody that wants to apply to the DOD General Counsel's Office, there's a resume bank on the DOD OGC website. And I had put my name in there for mainly focused on ethics. I mean, the resume I used was heavy on my ethics experience. And I was executive director of the BCNR and we're doing great things and I was enjoying the work, but it wasn't legal work. I was the executive director. And I knew at some point I had talked to my boss at the BCNR, who was a senior Navy general counsel within OGC. And he just got good advice. I said, I want to get back to practicing law. And he said, you're not going to do that in the BCNR as the executive director. So anyway, I was still interested in at some point transitioning back to legal work. And I got a call out of the blue because my resume had been in the bank. I got a call out of the blue from the SOCO director at the time who said, are you still looking? Because your resume has been in there almost a year. And she said, I checked with people who know you. And they said I should call. And those people that she checked with were people both in the DOD Office of General Counsel and judge advocates that work closely with this office. And she shopped my name around. And I'm grateful to them because they said nice things. So Ruth Vetter, who's you know one of my good friends now, invited me over to apply for what I thought at the time was a dream job, GS-15 non-supervisory ethics attorney job. So I was prepared to stay in that job and grow old in it. And just on that resume bank, I mean, Dave Gruber first told me about it. And I put a resume in there. If you have a resume in there, should you be updating it periodically just to let them know that you're still interested in updating with the experiences or is it a one and done process? 
as I understand it, you definitely want to refresh it about once a year. And then if anybody is specifically interested in working in DOD OGCA, the first thing I would say is it's an amazing law firm. I thought I was at the top of the game when I was with Navy JAG Co. 13. And while they are amazing, just the sheer level of experience with issues that's in BOGC has been just really astounding to see and the quality of people and the quality of lawyers. So I would say if you're interested in working in BOGC, definitely reach out to people who are in the area that you can work in. And the good news is it's not all retired judge advocates, but there's a lot of us from all branches of service. And you want to know, is there an opening? Because most of the DOD OGC positions are not advertised on USA Jobs, at least up in DOD OGC proper. At some of the defense agencies, you're going to see counsel positions on USA Jobs. That's the way they hire. But within the Office of General Counsel for DOD, it's pretty much accepted service. One other question about that resume bank. You know, do you field calls from different service branches or other DOD entities saying, hey, we're looking for ethics counselors and you guys that or is that basically for internal use for your office? Yeah, I'm not sure what larger DOD OGC does. What I can say though is that I have had colleagues reach out to me and say, hey, are you aware of any ethics counsel who are open to considering opportunities with my organization, my service? So, you know, as I've stayed in touch with colleagues from the JAG Corps, I've had the opportunity to connect them with both DOD and other agencies that are looking for ethics counsel pretty successfully. It's always encouraging to see them land well because it kind of validates what all of us have done in the military, that it is worth something both intangibly, but also tangibly. There are skills that you can definitely market well. Why I have this opportunity to talk to you, it should be point out that you were able to make that transition at a time when military officers could go right from the uniform services to the DOD or to a DON entity without a break in service, correct? No, I was actually in the first, probably the first year of the new law that oh, yeah, really? to have the, okay. uh, the six month. Yep. But as the executive director for BCNR reports up to the assistant secretary of the Navy for manpower and reserve affairs, and that's the official that has the authority to grant a waiver. So it wasn't really a stumbling block once they determined that I was the person they wanted to hire. But even within DOD OGC, I haven't seen it be a barrier. You know, that law is really designed to prevent an 05 or 06 from creating a GS-14 or 15 position and then immediately stepping into it. So as I understand it, there is a waiver process. I don't know that it's a lengthy process. My personal experience was that it was quick, but I also recognize that part of that was probably due to my reporting chain. Yeah, and I think that's important. Uh, two things and why I brought that up, Scott, was one, as least professionals uh, like lawyers shouldn't be discouraged from applying for jobs that are within the DOD or one of the armed services because of that statutory requirement in the waiver process. So I think that's an important lesson that if they want you, if you're the right person, they're going to pursue the waiver. But I think the second point that you made, not directly, is you need to know how the agency or how the entity processes it. I know the guy that I relieved it into in six, they weren't going to make a final decision until they had the waiver in hand where others may pursue it simultaneously, knowing with a high degree of success that they're going to get it, especially like a job of BCNR, which is very technical in the military personnel law and regulation system. It's not necessarily intuitive or something that you can pick up very quickly. So I think those are two, two important points that I wanted to flesh out with your experience. Yeah. In my case, it went very smoothly. And I would also encourage people, you know, for me, I settled on government work. I've been drawn to public service, but there are a lot of great opportunities in the private sector, in the compliance world. You know, I think certainly as judge advocates, we have the soft skills and the instincts. 
probably areas of the law we'd need to bone up on in order to go into compliance in industry. But there's definitely a need out there, and there's definitely a number of former judge advocates that have made that transition. In your current role as the director of SOCO, you interact with some of these ethics and compliance with major defense contractors, don't you? Yeah, we do pretty frequently because on the post-government employment restrictions in particular, if they're considering bringing on somebody and they have questions about, for example, a letter we've written, they can call me. There's pretty nuanced areas of the law that are specific to DOD now in the post-government employment world. And so industry really has is, is asked for help in you know, how to apply those. And so we'll frequently speak at groups like the Defense Industry Initiative, DII, and other groups, Capital Area Business Executive Networks is another one of compliance professionals. We haven't spoken at that, but there are these groups of business compliance professionals. No endorsement intended, of course, but we try to communicate with industry so that they know how to apply the laws effectively because my view is it doesn't help the individual, but it also doesn't help the department if we have somebody make a misstep. And And it doesn't help that entity either. And I only bring that up because of that mindset of not colluding, but of trying to head off problems for everybody involved. And and I actually, where I learned about that was I actually had an informational interview with the head of compliance of a major defense contractor. And he said some of those initiatives that, yeah, we interact with the DOD SOCO office because of the very things that you said. We don't want to create a misstep and we don't want to create problems for either the DOD on the other end or the person that's stuck in the middle or that we're trying to target or whatnot. So again, I bring that up because I think it's important to people out there thinking of compliance work on the outside that, hey, the network of people still in the DOD in the sense that there may be somebody that knows you're leaving, knows you want to get into ethics compliance and maybe you know, has someone on the industry side in their network and say, hey, I know this guy's retiring. You ought to take a look at them. Yeah. And I think, you know, Tom, you and I have had friends in the JAG Corps that have even done compliance work in academia. So it's not limited to just industry or just DOD or just government, but academia, nonprofits, you know, any organization that's regulated has a compliance element. It may not be government ethics law, but again, I think judge advocates are well-suited to practice in that sphere of regulation and regulatory compliance. So back to you, you had the dream job, non-supervisory, I think was the the dream there, plus the GS-15. And then how long were you in that position and how did you become the director of the Standards of Conduct Office? Yeah, I was in the position for just a little over two years and the director at the time left to take another opportunity. And so they needed somebody to be acting director while they looked for replacement. And I was asked to be the acting director. So I did that for a few months and then was encouraged to apply. I wasn't the only candidate, but there were several candidates who applied for the position and your interviews and writing ECQs and, and all those kinds of fun things was ultimately selected and finally appointed in June of 2019. So three years you've been in this job. You know, it's, I hate to say this, Scott, but when we were young lieutenants and lieutenant commanders, and if Steve Epstein's listening, we looked at Steve, the retired 06, the guy that's been around forever. You know what that means now, don't you? <laughs> it means you've been around a long time, Tom. <laughs> I know. It means I've been around a long time. And it means others have been around a, a long time, some who may be in on this conversation. So you chose government work. You alluded to that there was personal decisions, family decisions of why you wanted to go that route. What do you see as the landscape with government work now? post-COVID, you know, you hear the great resignation, but now we're getting back to work. What is sort of your perspective on government employment 
as a retire or detaching JAG? You know, I, I mean, I think if you're motivated by public service, and if you go, if a person goes to the private sector, it's not to say that they're not committed to public service, but it's, you know, if you enjoy public service, the government is still going to be a great place to work. I think it's it'll be interesting coming out of COVID to see how the culture in some agencies changes in terms of perhaps allowing more remote work or, or more telework. When I led the BCNR, we were very open to that. Rob first and then me, you know, actually created telework positions, remote telework positions, so that we could recruit former judge advocates to be in case reviewer positions. They weren't technically attorney positions, but it was a win-win because we got talent who might be located in the Midwest, but wow, they were a great judge advocate and we knew we needed them to move cases. So, you know, hopefully the government will, writ large will be more receptive to some of those arrangements. I still think we'll see what happens with DOD. I mean, there's a culture of being present, certainly if you're in the DC offices, and that's just kind of the nature of the beast. Depends on your position as well, but if you're in a leadership position in OSD, you know, you have to communicate a lot with the interagency, with the White House, with the Hill. And so there's just a culture of presence. So I, you know, I think it's a great place. And even if I had to stay in the office five days a week and telework wasn't available, you know, the federal government's still a good employer, provides well for our family, and generally has enough flexibility to make things work. I don't have to get on a ship and leave them or uh, go to a landlocked country for a year anymore. So, you know, that was fun when I did it. But so far, as a DOD Civilian Ethics Council, I haven't been asked to do that. So. I was talking to somebody, I said, you know, it, it's funny when you're young and a JAG, you're looking for those jobs that put you at sea for a year, or you go, you know, willing to support in a landlocked country in a combat zone, you're looking for excitement. And I know that warfare is not fun and, and something you do lightly, but you're looking for excitement as far as your job and everything else. But when you get a little more seasoned, you want stability and something that is conducive to your lifestyle both remuneration-wise and work-life balance. But on that note, how has it been coming back into the Pentagon as Mr. Thompson? Have you found people that know your background? Does it make it easier? Or does or do others see that, well, Mr. Not knowing that you served in the Navy is sort of an outsider? So I guess I would say a couple of things. You know, as depending on how long you've been an attorney, right? Your excitement comes in different ways. So litigation is always exciting. I wouldn't trade the deployments I had for anything. I mean, the people I worked with, the experiences, I wouldn't trade them. But the excitement now comes from different ways. The new challenges are, at this level, working with the Hill, right? So there's a lot of focus on ethics legislation. So working with Hill staff to make sure that as Congress is considering new laws, that they also consider the potential impact on DOD. You know, that's exciting. It's sometimes exhausting, but, you know, that's exciting work. You know, the opportunity to work with our most senior officials before they're even identified. So, you know, when the White House Personnel Office gets the green light from the president to start working a nominee, you know, we start interacting with that person even before they're identified as a potential nominee. So those are really exciting opportunities. And I would say my Navy background has served me well. I didn't know the department writ large, probably, but I had a really good handle on the Navy Marine Corps team. You know, although Secretary Austin is a West Point grad and lifelong Army officer, he hasn't uh, held it against me that I went with the sea services. But I think overall, it's been additive. There is a culture change. You have to get used to first name basis. So that's interesting. But that's going to be true even if you go into private industry. You always have your naval service or your military service to go back to, but you're not a colonel, you're not a captain anymore. You're just a mister or a Scott. And, you know, as long as the mission's getting done, it all works out. Scott. 
you know, I told you to only take up about a half hour of your time. We're approaching that half hour. What other nuggets, if any, you have for people that are retiring or separating from the core? As you approach transition, approach it like a job. You're going to get out of it what you put into it. Some people have landed really well passively where they, they get a call out of the blue and you know then they're asking their assignment office for a quick turn on a retirement. And that does happen. But I think for most of us, it's required effort. And so spend the time up front. Best advice I got from one of my mentors was he wished that he had started sooner. And so if you think you're going to be approaching a, a transition point in a few years, it's not too soon to start reflecting on what are the things that you've enjoyed most about your career what do you want to do? So that's the first thing I would say. The second thing is, and I think others on your podcast have said this, Tom, but don't self-limit yourself. As a judge advocate, you really can do anything. You might have to learn new bodies of law, but you've been doing that already. Every two to three years, you've been changing jobs. You've had to learn new things and you're going to be able to do that. And I think if you work hard at the job search and you have a reasonably good idea of what it is that excites you and that, that you like to do, that you'll land well. And then finally, don't hesitate to reach out to your network. So, you know, I frequently take calls from former judge advocates or people that are thinking about transitioning, and I'm always happy to give a few minutes of my time to, you know, answer any questions. That I, and I know that I'm not alone in that, that there are many colleagues that feel the same way. Well, Scott, I appreciate your time. I know that you've got a lot on your plate, all the things that you've said before. But testimony that you put your money where your mouth is with the, the network, I asked you to come on and talk about your experience, and you immediately said yes, and I want you to know that I appreciate it. I think others out there listening to this will also appreciate it, especially if they're thinking about, hey, maybe sticking with the government when it comes to doing ethics and compliance work. Well, thanks, Tom, for the opportunity, and any chance I get to reconnect with you is always a good one. So many good memories of our service together, and I'm really glad we're still serving together. So again, thanks for this opportunity. And maybe you and I will end up in an uh, Armed Forces retirement home together one day. <laughs> maybe. Maybe so. <laughs> Thank you for listening. If you like this podcast, be sure to subscribe and tell your friends. After the JAG Corps is a TJW 50 Associates LLC production.